Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of 10 Laws with East Forest, the podcast. Super happy to be back. My guest this week is a conversation I had with Amanda Giocamini. G- G- I can only, honestly, I'm not 100% sure how you say her last name, and I can only say it when I sound like an, a stupid Italian fool. Not that Italians are stupid, but I sound like a stupid Italian fool. But more importantly, she goes by 10,000 Buddhas, which is her art project that she's literally painting 10,000 Buddhas, among other things. And it's just turned into this incredibly beautiful meditation on sort of like a mantra of art. And I had the pleasure, you know, to get to know her a little better. I'd see her in passing, you know, here and there at festivals or gigs sort of crossing in the night, as it were. But when MC Yogi and I were working on Ritual Mystical, I actually stayed at their house for like two weeks. So that's when you really get to know folks, when you get to drop into uh, people's lives like that. And they were super kind. And she's one of those people that just seems to always have a very buoyant, positive energy. And it's something that I deeply admire So beyond wanting to talk to her about her art and her process with art, I also really just wanted to try to dig under that that hood a little bit and be like, do you have any tips, any secrets? Because it's not so easy for me. (laughs) I mean, frankly, like this last week or two, personally, I've been feeling just a lot of low-level anxiety. And that's something, you know, I deal with from really my whole life. I think since I was six, (laughs) Um, I remember like kindergarten being awesome, like truly awesome. Like I I liked it more than anything. It was just playtime, building blocks with my friend Matt. And and then I remember getting into first grade and, and seeing the desks and all that kind of stuff and was not into that. And I remember having a nervous breakdown in third grade where... I remember it vividly. I just suddenly realized that I had to go to fourth grade and then to fifth grade. And then, you know, I saw my whole future like that. It was just sort of a sham of this this system and I just couldn't handle it. But that school system is sort of there to break you. And I feel like it did break me. And I didn't really wake up out of that until, well, my late 20s. And psychedelics had a lot to do with that. And sort of, you know, how the universe conspires. It sort of all happened at once. And I found information and elders and experiences and well here we are there's there are the cliff notes to that but uh even though I have a lot of practices now that I didn't have before and a lot more of personal wisdom and knowledge about my own internal internal process I I still feel anxiety from time to time you know and which I make it a little different than depression and I would say more often than not I think my mind can slip into melancholia sort of a depressive um, mindset if I'm not very careful about personal practices, but anxiety. And I think it's sort of a perfect storm of a lot of things going on. It's a shift of seasons. It's getting hot out here. You know, I've been working a lot and there's a a lot of like loose ends going on and all things I'm very excited about. But I'm just being honest here. Like I'm noticing that, uh, it's it's causing like something where it's hard to kind of just fully relax. And why this is insidious and why I bring this up is because uh, I notice how it can have these sort of wide-ranging effects. 
in your life. And my, my body, your, your body can tell you what's going on. Like I've been feeling like certain kinds of uh, pain, like somatic responses in my body. And, you know, in the past, this was very confusing, but now I have to really trust that message to tell me, look, this is a way of, you know, it's sort of like playing whack-a-mole, you know, with your unconscious and it's coming up in a different place. And the way this was uh, brought to light, and I don't want to say solved, but you know, illuminated for me before was when a friend recommended this book called "Healing Back Pain Now," which is pretty, you know, pretty lame title, and it's a pretty boring book, but it uh, it's important, and it's Dr. Sarno, and it basically is showing you some connections about. Uh, unconscious psychological things going on and how they can manifest as pain. A lot of times that's things like very often back pain, but uh, in his view, a lot of migraines, sciatica, uh, prostatitis, uh, he, a whole bunch of different things that he, he mentions. And for a lot of people, just reading that book is enough to kind of inform your unconscious that the jig is up, that you know what's going on. Um, for some people, maybe you need to dig a little deeper than that, some kind of psychoanalysis or some kind of uh, some, some, some writing or some kind of work maybe. Um, but it worked for me in the past. When I initially read that book, I remember I watched the sort of the pain I was dealing with subside over a few weeks. And so since then, I've had a lot more awareness of connecting those dots of how sometimes anxiety in our lives, uh, your body sometimes is creating uh, these sorts of pain, um, let's say you're getting some kind of crazy migraine. I'm not saying this is always what happens, but that migraine could be your body, in essence, distracting you from a deeper concern. And what you need to do is to talk to that unconscious and tell yourself that, hey, I, I, I understand what's going on. There's nothing wrong with my body. There's nothing wrong with my body. And I'm dealing with the, the thing that's going on and here's how. And it's, it's all good. It's all G. And speaking of G, Amanda G, Giocamini, uh, she's someone who has that, that all G state kind of flowing all the time. And so I'm psyched to have her on the show. Uh, but first, please check it out. Coming up June 9th, Dallas, Fort Worth, doing an East Forest Ceremony, New York City, July 18th at Rockwood, Rockwood Music Hall. I'll be at the Groove Gathering in Ontario, June 22nd through 24th. Art in the Dark in Portland, August 3rd through 12th. Detroit at uh, Barefoot and Free, August 17th through 19th. And the East Forest Retreat is September 27th through 30th, with an optional day through to the, uh, the day after that, 31st, 1st, whatever. So please check that out, eastforest.org slash tour. And if you have any questions, want to say hi, reach out, info at eastforest. And that's it, man. We're just going to get right into this. And I think maybe next week I'm going to, I'm going to try and get a meditation together, a guided one for, uh, for anxiety, because that's the medicine I need. And I have a feeling that's something a lot of us can drop into. So here it is, 10,000 Buddhas. Enjoy. Thank you so much for, for joining me. I'm happy to spend some more time with you. It's been a while. Likewise. I'm happy to be here with you. You're a busy, busy uh, woman. Some of the time, yep. <laughs> yeah, you got a new house and you've been traveling internationally and you're continuing to 
grow with your 10,000 Buddhas. What's the, the latest with that? Um, well, last summer, I, I made my 10,000th Buddha, and I just kept going. At that point, the project had so much momentum. Um, I was just enjoying it so much. So I think right now I'm just over 13,000 Buddhas and counting. And um, I have new murals scheduled in San Diego in a couple weeks, in Venice, California. And I'm really excited uh, to go to Japan next month. And I'm going to paint a wall in Japan. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's like ground zero for Buddhism. That's an honor. That's great. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm really super excited. Well, you know, I've been familiar with the project, but I would love to just take it back just a little bit. If you could just try to explain how the hell this even started, that you decided to even do 10,000. And here you are crossing that threshold and going into who knows how many more. I mean, what what were you already a painter, I presume, but what spurred this idea? It sort of feels like a meditation or a, a kind yeah, of gift. Definitely. Um, I've been painting for a really long time, um, probably since I was a little girl, always painting. I studied art, uh, fine art in college. Um, and then I found yoga when I was about 19. And when I found yoga, I really... For some reason, it, it trumped everything, and I put my dreams of being an artist way on the back burner, and I just dove into my practice, and I became just a huge yoga nerd, and I, that's all I wanted to do, and, I, and then I, I wanted to practice, I wanted to study, I wanted to go to India. Um, it really sort of dominated everything. And then slowly, slowly, I started to find my desire to make art creep back in. But when it did start to creep back in, I noticed that the content of my art pre-yoga and post-yoga was really different. Um, I started to want to paint things that were related to my experiences and my studies as a yogi. And so um, initially when I started to paint again, I started painting a lot of the Hindu deities that I had learned about and discovered um, my travels to India and, and learning mantras and learning their myths. And so I just wanted to get to know them better. And I did that through painting. Um, and then my husband and I, MC Yogi, we started to travel to India pretty regularly. We studied with Patabi Joyce, who was the um, lineage holder for the Ashtanga yoga tradition. And every few years we'd go to India and to study yoga, but we would tack on um, extra time usually before or after our time in Mysore doing yoga to go to some of these incredible art and archaeological and sacred sites that are in India because there's so many. It's like infinite. Yeah. You could you'd yeah. need lifetimes to do them all. And on one of the trips back in 2007, I had seen pictures of this place called the Ajanta Caves, and they were 2,000-year-old Buddhist caves in central India, and they just caught my attention. They were beautiful. Um, they looked so fascinating. They were just so beautifully rendered, a lot of paintings of um, enlightened animals, <laughs> and they, had, uh, they were narrations of the life and the past lives of the Buddha inside these caves. And it just really piqued my interest. So we went there and 
when we were on our tour, it's a world heritage site now, um, but there really weren't that many tourists. It was a lot of Thai Buddhist pilgrims, monks who were there mm-hmm. visiting and a few Europeans and like really no Americans. And um, so it was, it was not a very crowded site and it was just mind blowing. Um, 33 caves all carved out by hand with giant sculptures of Buddhas and animals and, and celestial beings and demons. And I mean, it was just surreal. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's totally like, uh, you know, some crazy high tech CGI movie now, but back, you know, 2000 years old, just the depth of, of what they had created just alone was mind blowing. Um, and then there are paintings all through the caves, just all, the whole ceiling is painted, all the walls are painted, all the pillars are painted. Um, it was just such a, it was really the most epic art experience I've ever had <laughs> anywhere in the world. And one of the things that I saw inside the caves was a mural of a thousand little monks, little Buddhas sitting together. and. I went home from that trip and I kept thinking about that image for some reason over several years. That was the one of all the things I saw in those caves that just kept coming back to me. And it was five years later after visiting the caves that that seed of that impression of that one mural just kept, it came up to the surface and I was like, I'm going to just start painting Buddhas. I, I can't get this, I can't shake this image, you know, out of my head. Yeah. So I think I'll just start doing it. Was it originally sort of overtly a spiritual approach? Like, you know, you're making your art spiritualized or, or was it? I don't think I even had that conscious awareness when I started. I just had like a curiosity and a longing to see that painting again. And because it was so far away and it was so hard to get to, I thought I would just do my own version so that I could, you know, be with it again yeah. in my own way. And I think when I started, I had no clue about really what I was doing and the effect it would have on me. It was just, uh, you know, one of those small, still voices that you're like, hmm, I think I'd like to try this. And then, right. and then in the process, I discovered that I really enjoyed it. I, I painted, the first painting I did was about eight feet by four feet. And I did it um, with oil paints because that's what I painted with uh, for most of my training. And most of my life, I love painting in oil. So uh, oil painting is a really slow process. It's lots of layers, it's glazing, the paint takes days to dry, um, weeks to dry sometimes between layers. So it's just in itself a very slow meditative process. And I found, and again, I didn't know this was going to happen. I found that this meditation of painting Buddha is just my attention being on their form and this repetitive pattern of Buddha after Buddha and their little faces and their little hand gestures focusing on that, that I found it to be really, really calming and really a deeply sweet and steadying experience that I hadn't really had before as a painter. Um, you know, I, so yeah. I just, I think I stumbled upon it. 
and, it and feels like a, a personification of a mantra in a way yeah yeah and it's it's the repetition is really important and then um you know this on a subtle level i was starting to contemplate you know it's like it's you have this idea in yoga, like you point your mind toward this one thing and it stabilizes your mind. And then if you point your mind toward one thing that is um, uplifting and elevating, then you can really like overhaul your nervous system. And so I didn't really know it at the time, but I found over the course of just that first painting, it took me like nine months that every time I went to my studios, I noticed, gosh, I'm really just digging this. (laughs) I'm like so... I'm so peaceful. I feel so calm. I felt like I was in the presence of these Buddhas whenever I was painting them. You know, you develop a relationship with what you're working on. And, and so when I was close to finishing, I thought, wow, this is, this is a really beautiful thing here. I don't want to stop. I want to keep going. So do 10,000. <laughs> exactly. I was, Why like, not? I was like, if this is, if, you know, 99 Buddhas makes me happy, how happy will I be when I do 10,000? And I just, um, at that point, I think I was really still just doing it for myself. And I just stumbled onto a practice that was another form of meditation, um, was another form of a devotional practice. And, and uh, it had a really powerful effect on me. So I just kept doing it. And then the more I did it, the more it revealed itself to me, like, you know, the depth of what I was doing, but I certainly didn't know when I started. So are you monogamous to the Buddha or do you paint other <laughs> things? <laughs> oh my gosh, it's such a funny question. Um, <laughs> I do, I, I honestly, for the last six years, I have pretty much just painted Buddhas. Um, mm. I did a little detour uh, about two years ago. I started painting these magical ponies um, <laughs> and the reason for that was uh, MC Yogi and I had a dog, uh, the Mo, who we had for 16 years, and he passed away. And when he passed away, he I would dream about him, and in my dreams, he was the size of a horse. And ah, I would ride him, and we would fly around. He was like cool. a magical spirit pony now. Like I, I was like meeting him in like a, his spirit form, and. Yeah. Um, and so, honestly, I started painting the, these uh, ponies on the side as a, as a tribute and a way to connect to, to my dog, who I still dearly miss and, and love. So, yeah. um, but primarily, that's all I've been painting for the last seven years. <laughs> yeah, I miss my dog, too. I'm actually watching a friend's dog right now, so I'm getting back into that dog world and... <clears throat> this dog, it's an Australian Shepherd. He's like more loyal to me within one day of being here than my other dog, Kaya, ever has been. It's <laughs> so funny. It's yeah, it's sort of like a strange how he just just will do any go anywhere I go, just do whatever I do. You know, he just yeah. stays around. Yeah, so dogs have you know different personalities and temperaments, and some of them are deeply devotional beings, and yeah, really, really love that that. You know, they thrive off that sense of connection and loyalty. So um, I'm curious, going back before you you were saying you're doing art in college and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, anytime you go into a field like this where you're essentially carving your own path, there's got to be some inevitable fear that comes up, certainly early on. 
um, unless you just sort of stumble into it, or or maybe it doesn't for you. But being being an artist and making your own income and and following these visions you have to create that art, um, as opposed to trying to like pander and figure out what maybe would be a better business perhaps or sell better you know that's always a fine line when it becomes your job right and especially when it's so inherently tied to a spiritual calling inside yourself and how do you find that that manifests for you what comes up and what sort of challenges do you find you face when you have to do this as a business well i think um Pre-yoga, when I was painting, and I, I always thought I would end up being an artist, I actually worked for an art gallery in San Francisco for several years as part of my, you know, credits for college. Uh-huh. And when I was making art then, I saw the the underbelly of the art world mm-hmm. and how commercial it was. And I saw that artists uh, had to, like, create this persona, and then they had to sell this persona. It was it was like a whole package thing, you know, almost as important as their work, as this whole story that they had around Reminds it. Reminds me of the music world. Yeah, and I, and I think that's why when I found yoga, I was really, I actually had a distaste for the art world at that point. I thought, wow, yoga mm. is, I felt like, at the time, yoga to me was like this, this, incredible healing modality and um and I thought and at the time I was looking at the art world like this is really narcissistic and shallow Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I think that's part of why I put it aside and I during those years when I thought about being an artist I did think more it was more of a struggle I was more in my you know the the shadow side of my ego what am I putting out there will anyone buy it and how would I all of that, and when I, um, I when I kind of left it, I kind of decided I would I don't want to do that anymore. When I found yoga, and then when the art came back, and it was more just for me, um, and I did it out of my own for my own pure joy, and yeah. not really thinking at all about how I would sell it or market it at all. Uh, it became just sort of surprising and delightful that people wanted. They also liked the Buddhas, and they also thought that it was, uh, you know, gave, gave them a sense of peace and calm by looking at them. So they they wanted to buy them, and that was like, really? Oh, that's cool. Because <laughs> if I keep making ten thousand, I'm going to be buried in Buddhas. <laughs> like, I'll, yeah. need to, I'll need to rent a huge. Yeah, if you don't store. sell them, they'll overcome you. Yeah, you need yeah, to get them out of the space. Literally yeah. buried me if I didn't. Yeah. If people weren't kind enough to. Um, to buy them, so uh, so it worked out really well, <laughs> um, and then it helped me to to grow, and it helped me to dedicate more time to it, and then it helped me to do um, sort of graduate to being um, a, a public artist and a street artist, which you know requires a lot of time and investment, and I'll, most of the street art I've done has been pro bono. I've had to fund it myself, so. Um, you know, selling the smaller pieces helped support doing, you know, free public art. So it all kind of just flowed. But it it, it came from a place that was, um, I really, at the time, you know, I, we had a pretty steady yoga studio that we've had now for 18 years, our yoga studio. And um, 
I think I was never put the pressure on on my art to support me or pay the bills. So yeah. it just became this thing that was joyful for me. And if, if I sold them, then I could make more. And uh, hmm. I didn't have a lot of pressure around it. I had the same process with music too. Like previously pursuing it in a very different way, more commercial way, falling completely out of love with that sort of business commercialized side. And then when I came back to it, it was wanting to represent or kind of chase certain feelings that I was having through spiritual experiences that were very new for me at the time. And I was very excited about how that music was playing a role in that and some of like uh, ceremonies and things. And I really was trying to uncover or kind of unlock that code of of what, what it was that was that magic recipe. And I, I love that. And, and there is something, you know, with music and visual art that reaches into the subconscious, you know, that it's, it's this way of expressing things that we can't express completely with words. And, um, and so I love that you had that same experience, just wanting to communicate and using this other yeah, it was very personal. And like, I also didn't have any real goals or plans with it. And um, as a matter of fact, everything was free at the beginning. And in that same thinking, like eastforce.org, like it's a .org. And the reason that was, is because I was trying to keep it sort of like in the spirit of the gift. And I still try to do that in any way I can. Like my, that first record that I created for myself with no plans for it uh, is still free. Like it's it's wow. something out there on Creative Commons, and anyone can download that and use it and enjoy it. And but it was it wasn't until I also had that experience of just sort of following my own excitement and bliss that other people started to take interest in it as well. And I just noticed as like the years go by, that's sort of like a grounding point that you know I try to return to to remember like the home base of all this. You know, because you can get wrapped up in the the details or these different opportunities or as things start to expand and grow. Right. No, it's and true. And it's, it's important. To, to remember why you're doing it, back to the purpose or the mission. Um, yeah, what you like about it. <laughs> you know, what yeah. actually inspires you and um, the thing that, yeah, that, that core mission. So, um, well, I am still curious... Uh, I wanted to hone in on that question I asked you before a little tighter, and that is maybe I could say in this process for you as you do it, when does doubt play a role at all or fear? And when it does, you know, how does it come up and how do you work with that if it comes um, up? You know, I find that because since I started the, the 10,000 Buddhist project, I have zero fear around it mm. um, or zero doubt because it is not it's not me um, in the way that the art I made when I was younger felt like oh this is me you know yeah. and, and it's it's really just um, it's really just my it is really just my devotional practice so there's not a lot of oh is it is not a lot of judgment that I have around it. It's just um, coming from a pretty pure place and put it out there. And I don't, if, you know, I think, I think my only fear was I want to be really respectful of the image and my fear would be, um, you know, I don't want to do anything that would be uh, 
that would be disrespectful. Um, right. <laughs> using a, a, you know, a symbol uh, that for a lot of people is their religious symbol. Yeah. Well, it's not like you drew 10,000 alas or when you went in that cave and there was all the demons, you could have been inspired to do 10,000 demons, I suppose, which could be interesting too. Um, yeah. <laughs> if I were a different kind of person. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember, um, actually, I had this memory when I was about 15 at, at the school I went to. They brought in an artist to come speak to us. And I remember this artist had a, his art was really dark and, and pretty scary. It was kind of demonish. And he told us in the, his artist talk that he basically had these horrible nightmares. He was plagued with horrible nightmares and he would wake up and write them down. And his art with these giant sculptures um, were created from these terrible nightmares. Oh my God. And yeah. And I remember being 15 being like, Hmm okay like so he's choosing to share the scariest part of his inner world and i remember having this thought of like what would it be like if i could share the most beautiful part of my inner world you know and i remember having that thought at 15 like a desire to want to share that which would be uplifting and um joyful you must have had really good parents <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What, what did your mom and dad do for work? Um, my mom, uh, my parents divorced when I was five, and my mom decided to become a talk show host, and she did. And she had a, a <laughs> she had a live uh, hour long talk show when I was growing up in Boston. So she was in the entertainment business, um, but she went from being a housewife in her mid thirties to. Uh, having her own tv show so she has like a <laughs> oh my god that's awesome yeah i mean and i think what's so cool about her story is um is that she modeled for me just being completely brave and um and just following your dreams and and that you know she just she was just an, an amazing um unflappable force to to just kind of go for that and um for sure and so that was that was pretty cool she was also extremely open-minded and and because she was on tv she always was interviewing um interesting authors and writers and and she would often pass on things to my sister and i like hey there's this cool meditation technique i learned or creative visualization a lot of stuff that i got interested in in my teenage years was because my mom just casually like, oh, I, I interviewed this person and here's their book. And um, I got exposed to a lot of kind of radical and interesting ideas from her. What was the name of the show? Uh, the first show she had was called People Are Talking and it was um, syndicated in New England. And then we moved to Chicago and she did interviews on the news there on NBC. And then she moved back and did a, a show at night called Merrill at Midnight. So she had a, a variety of shows over the years. Yeah. Have you ever painted your mom? Uh, no, I've never painted a picture of her. But she's actually, when I was growing up, she had paintings in the house. She was pretty creative. She didn't do it full, full, full on. She's probably done a total of 20 paintings, but they're really good. <laughs> so she had a, a definite creative streak. And what about your dad? My dad um, 
is super smart businessman growing up. He worked all the time. He traveled all over the world doing uh, energy project development, like wind power projects and natural gas pipelines. And I honestly didn't understand a lot of what he did growing up. I was like, there goes dad with a briefcase on an airplane. I have no idea what he does for a living. <laughs> I think I was like 25 before I started to understand what his job was. Well, maybe they see you like, there goes Amanda on an airplane with a yoga mat. And they're like, I don't understand what's going on, but they're killing it. <laughs> yeah. And, and now he's retired and he, um, he got back to his love. He was a uh, English major in college. And since he's retired, he, he's published a book um, that was a fictionalized version of um, biblical Jesus years. And He's become this like biblical scholar, and so he's. he's Jesus, wow! And Jesus is yeah. Yeah. appropriate. It just yeah. comes out so, of me. He has uh, a lot of creativity in him as well. Yeah, I definitely can see. I don't, I'm sure you can see it. You definitely seem to be an amalgamation of those two people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I think my dad so happy because he I mean you asked about fear and doubt and I think he was the voice when I was younger wanting to be an artist and even a yogi of being like sweetie how are you going to support yourself with this right <laughs> and and I'm being like uh I don't know <laughs> and he definitely was the voice of like how are you going to you know how are you going to take care of yourself and I definitely think he was worried and I think he definitely has been um I'm kind of amazed over the years that we've been able to figure it out and, and be successful. And he's really proud of, of me for that, I know. So you just didn't have that self-doubt early on? I mean, I think I think I had his voice in my head wondering how is this going to work. But I think I had my mom's boldness of like, just do it. Just do it, yeah. <laughs> just don't let that hold you back. And, yeah. Um, well, in that process then, like if you're looking back – do you feel like you have any sort of maxims that you that you do employ as sort of you know even just saying that you're just 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 to do things is one of them or advice you would give to people who perhaps have a stronger sense of that critic in their mind um, and whether they even feel that they're creative or not? I think that um, the critic is is obviously for a lot of people like the biggest obstacle for. Her. For, for actually producing something creative. Or you can maybe produce it, but then you don't want to share it. And I think it's, you have to find a way to subliminate that voice in some way. Um, I think definitely my yoga practices helped, you know, when um, just focusing my mind on uh, like mantras or just, I'm going to paint these Buddhas. I'm not really going to think about, I'm not going to let those, any kind of weird thoughts get in the way. It's just me and Buddha right now for the next three hours um, was a way to silence any kind of critic criticalness that would have maybe stopped me. I, I definitely went through a phase like after starting yoga, before I started making art again, where I felt I was having a lot of creative, what I call creative miscarriages. I would start projects mm -hmm. and get kind of excited and I would get down the first few sort of parts of it and I'd start like three or four paintings and then my energy and enthusiasm would just peter out. It would, mm -hmm. it would just like, it would go from this full 
sort of rush of excitement and energy and enthusiasm to just nothing. You know, I had like, I would go in there and I would just look at them like, these don't work and I don't know how to fix them. And that was, uh, there were several years of that, you know, wow. wanting to be creative. Um, yeah, and it, it was hard because I was married to somebody who was like a fire hose of creativity <laughs> and like, <laughs> like constantly making and creating and having like seems to me from my perspective, mm-hmm. zero criticism, you know, inner critic or, mm-hmm. or hesitation to share what he had made. And I would just be like, you know, I'd make these like three dinky little paintings and I'd be like, mm, that's not very good. <laughs> and and uh, um, then I kind of just go back to my practice for solace and kept doing more and more yoga. And I, I think it really took me landing on this 10,000 Buddha project to really save me as an artist. I think before that, I was not taking myself seriously as an artist. I think I, I did it on the side. I definitely, during those years, doubted whether it was even worthwhile for me to make anything. And I think somehow stumbling into a process that was personal and then seeing how people responded to it definitely kind of picked me up out of this place of, of not really, um, you know, now I really feel like I, like when people say, well, what do you do? And I can say, well, you know, well, I'm a painter, I'm a muralist. And I can, Mm -hmm. I can like say that with confidence now. There definitely was some years where I couldn't say that. Do you think the um, element? It just took for me to project sorry yeah sorry to interrupt you i was just curious if you thought the element of repetition um maybe plays some role i'm trying to think like if you were to talk to someone else who was in that rut artistically and it you know sort of what unlocked it for you part of it was a subject matter part of it seems to be this repetition i mean the fact that there's this number attached to it ten thousand. Um, is the idea, and I think that's interesting because it there's this saying about 10,000 hours for mastery, right. um, which may or may not be true, but it's an interesting that these things line up. I don't know how you pick that number 10,000, but perhaps something about the, um, doing something over and over again that you enjoy as opposed to like scrambling around um, trying 10,000 different things. Right. You know what I mean? I think- I think a couple, I'll I'll share with you a couple moments that I had um, in my development to get to this place that I think had an impact. And one was um, during the years where I was not really making art, I had been practicing yoga. I kind of set my art to the side and I was working at a book publisher in San Francisco. Um, Ironically, the same publisher that ended up publishing MC Hokie's book 25 years later. Nice. (laughs) So um, I was working there and I went on a trip to New York and I went to the Met and in one of the galleries, they had an exhibition, um, like the room was filled with some paintings from this one European artist and I can't even remember his name, but they said in, on the plaque that I read, it said, you know, these paintings come from a museum that was set up. Uh, for this artist that he has made over a hundred thousand pieces of art and it's all cataloged at this museum. And I remember that I was probably in my very early twenties when I 
did that trip. And I remember that had such an impact on me that one artist could make a hundred thousand anythings that I went um, and I quit my job and I got an art studio. I was like, whoa, like if an artist can make a hundred thousand things, I'm not really, I better like, I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing enough. And I realized that I needed to, if I was going to do any art, I needed to like actually do it and commit to it. And so I rented my first studio down in the hate Ashbury district of San Francisco. It was like a basement with really like four foot ceilings. I practically had to crawl into what, what it. What was the rent on that back then? Oh my God. That's a really good question. At the time it felt like a big investment. <sighs> you know, I, I had yeah. a rent control apartment, but my job uh, in publishing back then was, I think I made like I want to say I made like $18,000 a year. Oh, I was probably. Like, yeah. At best. Yeah. Really, really, um, low. And, and, uh, I remember, I, I don't remember what my rent was. It, it may have been like three or 400 a month, but it was a lot for me. You know, it was like a yeah. big, step. it was a big commitment and a little scary, but I remember seeing that, that small thing that I, you know, noticed at the Met that just shifted me and gave me like the kind of, kicking the butt, like the prod to like, Hey, if you're going to do this, you got to get started. And yeah. uh, so that was like one thing. And I don't know if that hundred thousand thing somehow was buried in my subconscious too, but somehow the number was important to me. And, um, and then the, another thing, um, that happened later on, uh, hold on, I'm going to have a little sip of water. Well, I actually, um, the 10,000 just kind of came, it, it was sort of like a subconscious thing that occurred to me. Again, it wasn't very, I didn't, I didn't have a reason. I just picked a big number. It's a big commitment. Yeah. And I think I wanted a big commitment. I think I wanted mm-hmm. something to like dive into that would be encompassing. Um, but the other experience that I had that may have uh, informed my desire to do this repetition is this time we were traveling in Germany and we went to a museum exhibit that had, uh, it was like toys and comic book stuff. And of course, uh, MCOG was like super excited because <laughs> yeah. he loved that stuff. So we went to this exhibit and there was another artist, again, I can't remember their name, but they made this like, they had an exhibit of like hundreds and hundreds of his toys that he had designed and they were this character but every every toy was a slight variation of that one character and i think uh-huh. that affected me too it was like huh taking this seeing how artists could be successful by taking this one concept that they really liked and then pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and mm-hmm. trying different sizes and different colors and different variations but like staying with the same theme and I think that also had an impact on me. And I think when I got into the Buddhas, some of these things that had been seeds planted in me, like clicked together, like the big number and then the, the repetition of the same theme as like a way to find success. Yeah, well, I can see that. Um, I was relating that back in my mind to myself and I never had... You know, with music, it's like less 
malleable in a physical form. It's hard to quantify, but I did always think about the whole 10,000 hours things. And there have been times I've tried to like casually count up in my head how many hours I've played music to feel like I can get my key to the city or something if I reach 10,000. But it's the way you've done it is is pretty cool. I mean, I like this idea of a meditation where you're just slightly shifting something and pushing the boundaries of its its form and but also getting lost in the process too. Do you feel like there'll ever be an endpoint to that? Um, I don't know. And for me, even though I chose the 10,000, it was never a destination. Um, like it was never an endpoint. It was just a big number that I could dive into. In fact, when I started, I didn't even ca- I didn't even keep track in the beginning. And then I found that everybody I talked to would say, hey, how's it going? What are you up to? Oh, I'm just painting 10,000 Buddhas. They'd say, well, what number are you at? And I was like, mm-hmm. it was more for other people. I think <laughs> and, it's the first thing I asked you today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like an ass. Fascinated, fascinated by what number am I at? And so I went back at that point, I had about seven or eight paintings and I went back, I had pictures, I could write it all down. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I've just broken a thousand. And then from that point on, I wrote on every painting on the back, what number Buddhas they were. And I have a word document where I, you know, I kept track of murals and, and That's cool. everything else. So yeah, there was something um, almost for others that was about the numbers. So when I got to the 10,000, it was never in my mind that, that I would ever stop there. It was, um, it was just kind of like, okay, now I did that. That was so cool. I didn't know that I'd be able to do that. What's next? And so um, as long as I still really enjoy it and I'm, I'm finding ways to keep it interesting and fresh for myself, I'll keep going. And, and I think it may start to morph and shift. Um, I'm going to be doing... Uh, down in San Diego, where I'm going next to paint, I'm going to do one large single Buddha. Um, oh, cool. And so that will be kind of cool. He'll be like nine feet tall. And uh, I did one in Asheville, too. Um, and I saw, I have this desire. I, I saw this really cool um, place in Japan a couple years ago um, in Kyoto that had a thousand female Buddhas um, that were standing like an army. They're all armed to the teeth <laughs> with all these like 40 arms and different weapons. And so I, I have some like things like sort of percolating in terms of, um, of ways that I could continue to push the variations of, of, the, of the meditation. Um, yeah. We've always been someone from how I've known you with such a lovely disposition. And is that something you were born with? Is, 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 or do you have some secret to, or is it the biomat? What is it? It's just biomat. Um, I, I think, I don't know. I was just with my mother for Mother's Day. And I think, uh, I think she's, she would say probably I was always a pretty happy kid. I just yeah. said I just lucked out in the, the lottery of, you know, my brain chemistry and, uh, she's a pretty happy person too. And she, she says, I got, I, she likes to take credit for my good disposition. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of <laughs> like course. a, like a true mother, mm-hmm. <laughs> all the good things I got from her. But, um, 
Yeah, what I'm, are what are the things that uh, trigger you though? What uh, trips you up? I think you know I'm very I feel very lucky that I've designed I've put the effort in, but I've also designed a life that's very peaceful. There's very low drama. Um, it's a life where I get to create. I get to share my creations. That's very fulfilling. I get to practice yoga, which helps me, but I also get to teach yoga, which is also very fulfilling. And and that sense of like serving others and helping them to feel healthier and calmer and get in touch with that um, good spiritual energy is very rich experience. I think that uplifts me, keeps me um, keeps me happy. I think I get to, I'm very lucky I get to live in Point Reyes, which is, you know, it's outside the city. It's a lot of nature. Um, I think that helps feed me. Uh, I've got this garden that I love to be out there with the plants. And, you know, I just, I just, I, I get happy when I'm in my garden um, talking to the plants. I, I love cooking. I, I think just choosing things every day that help keep me in a good place. Um, I think I can get grumpy. I can get run down. I can get agitated. It's not like I'm beyond those things, but I, I do my best to make, fill my day with as many things that keep me in the good spiral. Um, so sort of a design question. Like I see you saying that a lot of those are conscious choices to cultivate the things that you see really help nourish you in that way. I think, like I said, I think I got lucky a little bit genetically with a good disposition, but I think I've had to make a lot of choices to, to keep that, to keep Man, that going. I, I'd kill for your disposition, you know? <laughs> I would. I, it's like the, I feel like my soul, you know, our souls pick these journeys for, for whatever reasons. And it's like, mine's like, it's like, yeah, I think let's do this melancholic thing where we're always a little impatient and kind of hard on ourselves let's do that one see where it goes some grand design for you there something you must be getting from it so yeah yeah well maybe i need a garden you also like really good wine maybe that's a ticket too good glass of wine good glass of coffee definitely enjoy the senses you know i think i'm deeply affected by beauty and and good food and um and music and music yeah yeah I got so excited. We did a show down at, in Joshua Tree, and um, MCW decided to bring these bubble guns that lit up and blew bubbles everywhere. <laughs> he invited me on stage, and I had two bubble guns, and I found myself like twirling around. Oh my god! Superhero. And and his superhero was in a superhero outfit. The whole thing almost sent me to the moon. I just got so excited. Wow! <laughs> it almost put me over the edge. Like too too much happiness. <laughs> death by happiness yeah. well if it could happen to anyone I could see it happening to you guys exploding in a sea of joy <laughs> yes and I think it's right up there <laughs> <laughs> well cool um, well what? where can people find your work at this moment and I'm sure I'm, some of your stuff is for sale straight up or do you have to commission it how's that work um, uh, I have a website, which is 10,000 Buddhas. It's one, it's numeric. It's one four zeros Buddhas. And that's the same on Instagram and Facebook at 10,000 Buddhas. And I do put up work um, every so often. It goes pretty quickly. So there's not a ton of inventory up there at any given time, but I'm constantly, I'm working on three new paintings now. And um, 
I will be doing another round of prints soon. So yeah, you can keep your eye out. I, I've started to do some journals and some other little items too, to help keep up with the demands. <laughs> yeah, I've got one of those journals right here. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But mine has um, magical ponies. Yes. And I'm very excited. So uh, Wanderlust Epic Squad invited me to come up and do a magical pony mural this summer. So oh, cool. I'm, so, I'm super excited. Um, How long does that take for you to do something like that? You know, I've gotten the one thing about repetition is it makes you really efficient. Mm -hmm. and you Every time I do a wall, I figure out new little tricks. Um, you know, I'll use these clips and then I'll use this cardboard and I everything gets a little bit faster so I can cover a lot of a lot of uh, square footage in a day actually um, and I find when I do a wall I mean I did a the, I've done like a huge three-story wall in three and a half days wow but I would think that um, that nine-foot Buddha would almost take longer because it's one figure um, one figure but it's stenciled so the uh. prep work is is time-consuming like cutting out the, the different layers of the stencil, but right. then the actual execution, maybe half an hour. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's using street art techniques, so you do a lot of the prep work, and then when you actually go to apply it, it goes really fast. Nice. Yeah. So like you've, really have you been to Japan before? Uh, yes, been a couple times. Um, absolutely love it and really excited to go back. Do you ever get mistaken for like half Japanese or quarter or something? Oh, that's a funny question. My best friend in college was half Japanese and people always thought we were sisters. I think <laughs> we have, I have the, uh, the high cheekbones um, uh -huh. and you know, dark, dark, dark yeah. straight hair. Mm -hmm. But um, when I'm there, not so much. Last time I was there, I was walking through the train station and I had on this... <laughs> I had on this like um, my favorite summer outfit of the year, which was this like um sort of short like onesie thing that was a a palm tree print in my blues and turquoise <laughs> and i suddenly looked around and i was like uh <laughs> <laughs> i do not look like anybody else in this train station everybody had kind of a black and a black and gray uniform on and I definitely didn't look Japanese in that moment. <laughs> well, it's good to strike out on your own. You're a brave soul. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Amanda. It's been lovely to talk to you. And oh, thank you, Forrest. I hope you come visit us again soon. I, I do too. I'm really looking forward to seeing the new digs. Yeah, we would love we would love to have you. You were one of my favorite house gifts ever because you oh. like to cook and you make your bed. So you're always welcome. <laughs> you had a bio mat in the guest room, so I was pretty much good to go. Yeah, we we do. We still have that for you. <sighs> oh my god! Wow, it's uh, you guys are moving up, moving up in the world. Yeah, it's cool. All right. Well, thanks. Have an awesome day. Thank you too. You have a wonderful day. We'll see you soon. Well, there it is. Thank you to 10,000 Buddhas, Amanda, for joining us. I really enjoyed our conversation. And it's inspiring. It's, it's like, I think I can, I think I can do it. You know, it's like you hear something like that and you think, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it can, it can be done. It can be done. 
If you like this song you're hearing in the background, this is called Brushed, and it is from the album Held Slash Kindred, which was a companion record to the album Held that came out, I believe, last year. And it's got some B-sides and also some remixes, and this is one of those B-sides. Thank you again for listening to the podcast. Please do review it. Just scroll down there on your phone. I think it's on the, the you'll find it, you know, somewhere at the main page of 10 Laws with East Forest Podcast. Give it those five stars. More importantly, give it a review and share it on social media. Share it with your friends. It just helps us stay sustainable in these first few weeks of getting this thing out. And I'm looking forward to having lots more conversations and offering whatever comes up. So keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit, but if you do, do it with grace. Thank you.